We continue our study of the book of Ezekiel. We've come to the 11th chapter. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11. Before we read that, I'd like to read to you from Lord's Day 3. If you wish to follow along, it's page 873. The back of your hymn book, 873. Lord's Day 3 asks the question, did God create man so wicked and perverse We noted in the conclusion of Lord's Day 2 that I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So the question is asked, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? For the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Ezekiel chapter 11. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. There at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain, whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat and this city is the cauldron, but I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, says the Lord God, and I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hand of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Now it happened, while I was prophesying, that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah died. And I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, 
Your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own head, says the Lord God. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So far, the reading of God's word. Born on December 16, 1714. His father died when he was only two. And his mother remarried when he was eight. Sadly, the marriage was not a godly one, and it ended in divorce. Because of the instability at home, he became involved in stealing, lying, fighting, and cursing. However... George Whitfield had a remarkable mind. And when he was 16, he began reading the Greek New Testament and learned Latin. But his restless soul remained dead to the things of God. At 18, he entered Pembroke College at Oxford University. Struggling with a guilty conscience and lack of peace, he diligently pursued a right standing with God. He prayed, he fasted, and his severe discipline in the efforts to earn salvation caused him to suffer a lifelong physical weakness. Then one day, he was handed a book, a book on the new birth, entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. As he read, he discovered that the way of salvation was not by his own religious deeds, but by divine regeneration. And under deep conviction, he said, I must be born again or be damned. At 21, Whitfield was regenerated by the Spirit of God. Regarding his own journey, he said, God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold on his dear son by a living faith. 
Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off. George Whitfield went on to become one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. One writer said of him, since the time of the apostles, the annals of church history record no other individual who possessed such gospel ambition and relentless determination. Spurgeon spoke of him as chief of preachers. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he is beyond any question the greatest English preacher of all time. William Cooper, John Newton, J.C. Ryle, and others all spoke of him in like manner. Congregation, having been brought from death to life, Whitfield said, a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be Christian. A man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be Christian. Isn't that also what we see in our scripture reading for this afternoon? At the time of Ezekiel, there were many who were numbered among God's covenant people, church members, and yet they were dead in trespasses and sins. Sadly, the majority of the nation of Judah was not displaying the fruits of regeneration. Repentance, faith, worship, and godly living were not clearly manifested. There was widespread distortion of truth, false worship, and sinful living. The Lord was not honored at his sanctuary, and Jerusalem failed to be a light to the nations. In our chapter for this afternoon, we again see the iniquity of Judah and her terrible transgressions. But there's also something in our chapter that's very encouraging and uplifting. In the latter part of the chapter, the Lord spoke of a day when he would turn the hearts of sinners to himself. He would change their affections, wills, and lives. The latter part of the chapter speaks of repentance, renewal, and restoration. The Lord's going to do a mighty work in his people. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. There would be a spiritual resurrection. As we focus on the 11th chapter of Ezekiel in connection with Lord's Day 3, we want to consider the importance of regeneration. We are inclined toward all evil unless we are born again. Notice first the message of condemnation for those in Jerusalem in verses 1 to 13, and then second the message of consolation for those in Babylon in verses 14 through 25. We begin with a difficult message of condemnation. The 11th chapter of Ezekiel is part of a vision which began back in chapter 8. Recall that he was meeting in his house with the elders of Judah when suddenly he was lifted up by the Spirit and brought in a vision to the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, God showed him all the abominations in the temple which provoked him to anger. In chapter 9, the Lord showed Ezekiel that there would be a great slaughter in Jerusalem because of these abominations. In chapter 10, 
The chariot of the Lord was preparing to depart from the temple, carrying away the God of Israel. The glory cloud of the Lord mounted the chariot and prepared to depart to the east. The Lord was withdrawing from his church. And now in chapter 11, the vision continues. We read in verse 1 that the Spirit lifted him up and brought him to the east gate of the house of the Lord. And what did Ezekiel see at the east gate? He saw 25 men, leaders in Jerusalem. Two of them are mentioned by name, Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah. In verse 2, the Lord gives his evaluation of these men, and it's not very flattering. Son of man. These are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. What Ezekiel saw was a meeting of Jerusalem's leaders in council together. They are not men who meet God's approval. Rather, they devise iniquity and give wicked advice. They do not lead by the word, encourage repentance in Jerusalem, or call God's people to obedience and faith. Instead, they multiply sin in the nation. They do not reflect the character of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had already made two invasions of Judah, right? The first one was in the year 605 when Daniel and other able young men were taken to serve in Babylon. The second invasion was in 597 when King Jehoiachin surrendered, and this time Ezekiel was among the exiles. During those two invasions of Judah, most of the leadership was taken captive and deported. We read in 2 Kings 24 that when Jehoiachin surrendered, his mother, his servants, his princes, the captains, all the mighty men of valor, and all the craftsmen and smiths were taken away. None remained except the poorest people in the land. Because the leaders were taken away, new ones were appointed in Jerusalem. Jazaniah and Pelatiah, mentioned here in verse 1, had risen to positions of considerable power, referred to as princes of the people. You see that there? Princes of the people. Unfortunately, these new leaders of the city did not evaluate the cause of the invasions and consider why they had taken place. Had they studied the word of God, they could have easily concluded that Jerusalem was under God's covenant curse and that the Babylonians were sent as a punishment upon Judah's sins. If these new leaders had only humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, they could have brought many blessings to Jerusalem. Tragically, instead of using their authority to, honor, to the honor of God, they used it to multiply wickedness. They learned nothing from the previous two invasions of Judah. Learned nothing from the judgments of the Lord. These leaders of Judah were hard-hearted, spiritually rebellious men. Now, brothers and sisters, here you need to Track with me, and hopefully you can follow along, follow what I'm saying here. But the words of verse 3 are rather difficult to understand. So please follow along closely here. 
While they're difficult to understand, judging by the context, they seem to be words of self-confidence and arrogant boasting. Have a look with me in your Bibles to verse 3. These leaders say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Now, the first part of verse 3 has also been translated in the form of a question. Have not the houses been rebuilt recently? Have not the houses been rebuilt recently? When translated this way, it can be understood as a reference to the work that they had accomplished in Jerusalem. During the invasions by Nebuchadnezzar, much damage had been done in the city. But through the leadership of these 25 men, the damage was repaired so that the city was restored. Therefore, the leaders boasted of their good success. Have not the houses been rebuilt recently? However, the first part of verse 3 has also been translated in another way. Isn't the time near to build houses? Or will it not soon be time to build houses? When translated this way, it can be understood as a confident expression that their city would never be taken from them. Their people could soon go ahead and build their houses because despite the threat, the city would remain intact and would not be destroyed. The people could make their long-term plans for Jerusalem would not be overthrown. Are you following me? Then again, verse 3 has also been translated this way. It is not for the one who is near those in Jerusalem to build houses. Those who are far off in the land of exile may, if they please, take the prophet Jeremiah's advice and set about building houses for themselves. That does not concern us. Now, congregation, whatever translation you go with, it amounts to boasting on the part of the leaders. They arrogantly assert the security of Jerusalem. Then the second part of verse 3, keep following along here, the second part of verse 3, this city is the cauldron and we, we are the meat, seems to mean something like this. As meat belongs in a cooking pot, so we who are the choice cuts belong in Jerusalem. These rulers in Jerusalem may perhaps be implying that the exiles in Babylon were like the entrails of an animal unfit for the cooking pot. The exiles in Babylon were like the, the waste parts of a butchered animal, while those who remained in Jerusalem were the choice cuts for the cooking pot. It appears the people in Jerusalem had become unsympathetic of their brothers in Babylon and spoke of them rather negatively. Those who remained in Jerusalem considered themselves the favored few. But congregation, in verses 4 to 13, we see that from God's perspective, they are not the favored few at all. They were not superior to their brothers in Babylon as they imagined. The current leaders may have thought that for them, Jerusalem was a safe haven, but they were sadly deluded. The Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Look with me, please, to verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat. 
and this city is the cauldron, but I shall bring you out of the midst of it. Verse 8, you have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God, and I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. The Lord said, you leaders of Judah have caused the blood of the innocent to run in the streets of Jerusalem. Those who are the slain are the meat, the best of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You leaders think that you're the meat, but you're the butchers. You're the butchers. And I'm going to throw you out of the cauldron altogether and deliver you into the hands of the enemy. Verse 11. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel. The leaders are going to be cast out of the cooking pot and slain by the sword. Congregation, these words were fulfilled in 586 when the leaders of Jerusalem were removed from the city and brought in chains to Riblah in the land of Hamath and were killed in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You can read of it in 2 Kings 25. The leaders of the city were thrown out of the cauldron as meat unfit for the cooking pot. They were brought to the borders of Israel where they fell by the sword. God's word never fails. What he says always comes to pass. In verse 13, the Lord gave Ezekiel a sign of this coming judgment. What's the sign? As he watched and listened to these leaders, what happened? Children? Suddenly, Pelatiah collapsed and died. He dropped dead as if he suffered a massive heart attack. For Ezekiel, the sudden death of Pelatiah foreshadowed the mass executions that were coming, a symbol of the imp impending disaster for Judah's leaders. The meaning of the name Pelatiah is significant here, for it means Yahweh provides escape. With his sudden death, it seemed to Ezekiel that all hope of escape was gone. Therefore, he fell on his face and cried with a loud voice, verse 13b, Ah, oh Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel responded to Pelatiah's death with profound grief, for he feared that with his death, the Lord was indicating that no one would be saved. The remnant would be wiped out and his people utterly consumed. In verses 14 through 25, the Lord reassured Ezekiel that he would maintain a remnant. Nevertheless, the judgment coming upon Jerusalem would be severe. The sudden death of Pelatiah was a symbol of mass slaughter to come. Now, congregation, the reason for the death and destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem is stated in verse 12. What's the reason? The Lord said, you have not walked in my statutes nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. 
The wrath of God was coming upon them for breaking his covenant, neglecting his law, and walking the ways of their Gentile neighbors. Although they were God's special people, called to be holy as the Lord is holy, they were behaving like pagans. Behaving like pagans. People of God, with these condemning words, we do well to ponder, is your life different from that of your unbelieving neighbors. Because of the gospel, do people see a difference in you? Do your neighbors see that you are consecrated to the Lord? Or do they conclude that your life is the same as theirs? You live as they do. Do the guys at work see you go to church, but you live and speak as they do? Someone once said, listen, young people, someone once said, if you were accused in a court of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused in a court of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is your conduct clearly that of a Christian? Are your desires, your conduct after work, your priorities, your marriage, family life, entertainment, business practices different from that of your neighbors? Young people, do you live a life devoted to Jesus Christ out of thankfulness for all that he has done? The problem in Judah was that although they were covenant people, marked as God's people, many of them dismissed the gospel and lived like the nations. This has always been a major threat to the church, dismissing the gospel and living, acting, speaking, and thinking like the world. Yes, we ought to examine ourselves Is our conduct shaped by the world or by the word? Are you directed by the world or by the gospel? For the leaders of Judah, as well as the majority of the people, the customs of the Gentiles prevailed. And therefore the Lord sent them a message, one that should serve as a warning to us today. If you're conformed to the pattern of the world, you will be condemned by the Lord of the church. But then secondly, I want you to notice that this chapter contains not only a message of condemnation, condemnation for those in Jerusalem, but also a message of consolation for those in Babylon. In verses 14 through 25, we find a message of hope. It is the answer to Ezekiel's question of verse 13. Ezekiel fell on his face and cried with a loud voice, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? The answer that follows in verses 14 through 25 is, No, I will preserve a people for myself. And then what we find in these verses, congregation, is an unexpected twist. The inhabitants of Jerusalem who had so far escaped exile will be slaughtered, while the exiled ones in Babylon will be blessed and restored to Jerusalem. 
The Lord is going to work in a way that no one expected. Who would have thought that those who had been deported and resettled in Babylon hundreds of miles from home could ever hope to return to the city under God's blessing? You might expect the Lord to work with those who were left in Judah and Jerusalem, but no. No, the Lord works out his plan through the scattered exiles. We note from verse 15 that the remaining citizens of Jerusalem had written off the exiles and considered themselves to be the favored ones. Having escaped the exile, they believed that they were the true heirs of the holy city. They looked down upon their brothers in exile as though they were rejected by the Lord while they, the remaining inhabitants of Jerusalem, were favored. We read in verse 15b that they said concerning their brothers in exile, have a look there, 15b, get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. You see, they frowned upon their brothers, insulted them and disowned them. But the Lord said, these despised captives are the very ones that I am going to raise up. Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. God said, I'm going to slay the inhabitants of Jerusalem in my wrath, but I'm going to gather the exiles and bring them back to the land. My glory will, be will depart from Jerusalem, but I will return bringing my people with me, and they will remove the detestable things and the abominations from the city, verse 18. God promised to do a mighty work among the exiles. Dear friends, he not only promised to do a mighty work for them, but he also promised to do a mighty work in them. He would not only bring about another exodus, restoring the exiles to the land, but he would also bring about internal renewal. This is what they needed most of all. Their hard hearts had to be changed. The divine surgeon had to give them a heart transplant. Their hearts of stone had to be cut out and replaced with hearts of flesh. The divine surgeon had to bring them into the operating room and perform radical surgery. This is what the Lord promised. Look at verse 19. Then I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This, brothers and sisters, is the language of regeneration. A heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. A dead, cold, hard heart is replaced with a living, warm, soft, pulsating heart. A heart that is dead to the things of God is replaced with a heart that yearns after Him. 
Lord's Day 3 of our catechism asks the question, did God create man so wicked and perverse? If we're inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor, did God create us this way? The answer, of course, is no. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that we might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. God did not create man with a hard, stony, rebellious heart. He created man with the unique ability to mirror and reflect his holy and righteous character and to live in joyful fellowship with him. But our catechism goes on to explain that through the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, our nature is so poisoned that we are all conceived and born in sin. By nature, we're so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. What's the only hope for wicked, perverse, poisoned, corrupt, hell-deserving sinners? Regeneration. Regeneration. You must be born again. Verse 19 is talking about this vital inner transformation. By giving them a new heart, the Lord would cure them of their idolatry and false worship. He would take away their coldness, deafness, blindness, and deadness. He would remove their corrupt nature and give them a heart that is capable of bearing good fruit, a heart that is drawn in love to God. Dear friends, this radical heart surgery was not only necessary for the Israelites in exile. It is something that we all need all descendants of Adam. You remember that a ruler of the Jews once came to Jesus recognizing that Jesus was not just your typical rabbi. Jesus said something to him that he was not able to understand, something that he, he couldn't figure out. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again? in the world is Jesus talking about? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It was a riddle to Nicodemus. Although he was a religious leader, he lacked the most basic knowledge of the way of salvation. Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, a theologian, a Bible scholar, and do not understand these things? Nicodemus had the scriptures, the Old Testament, but the truth had not yet penetrated his heart. He was a religious man, but not a redeemed man. He knew nothing about the doctrine of regeneration. He was spiritually dead. Jesus told him that spiritual rebirth was an absolute necessity for seeing the kingdom. Congregation, what does it mean to be born again? 
It refers to a new beginning, the beginning of a new life in a radically renewed person. Regeneration is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, by which he makes the spiritually dead sinner alive. It's a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. In regeneration, God plants a desire for himself in the human heart that otherwise would not be there. By his spirit, he implants in the souls of his people new wills, affections, and desires. Physical birth is an amazing thing, but spiritual birth is even more astonishing. The world may take little interest in the supernatural birth of a child of God, but Jesus said that there's joy in the presence of the angels. With those who are dead in trespasses and sins are spiritually resurrected, there is great joy in heaven. Dear friends, Jesus said that without regeneration, you cannot enter the kingdom of God or be received into his loving presence. And unless we are born again by the Spirit of God, we cannot bear fruit that is pleasing to him. To be right with God, the divine surgeon has to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That is a work that only he is able to do. It is a work of sovereign grace. Please notice the emphasis in verse 19. I will give. I will put. I will take out, and I will give them a heart of flesh. This is something that fallen man is unable to do. Only God can accomplish a heart transplant, bring a sinner from death to life, bring about spiritual resurrection, and turn a sinner so that his affections are drawn to Jesus Christ. Congregation, if you have received that heart of flesh, you can only worship and praise him. It's not what you have accomplished. It is a sovereign work of Almighty God. By nature, your heart is hard, cold, and unreceptive to spiritual things. But through the wonderful grace of God, a heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, and a dead sinner is brought to life. How does one know whether or not he has received this heart of flesh and been born again by the Spirit? How do you know? First, he knows because he has obeyed the gospel call to repent and believe on Jesus. It is only through conviction of sin, obeying the gospel invitation, and embracing the message of the cross that we can ever be sure that we have been regenerated. Second, he knows because of the signs of regeneration in his daily life, his desires, attitudes and priorities change as verse 20 says they walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them when god performs heart surgery removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh it changes a person's entire outlook on life do you hate sin and flee from it do you love righteousness and pursue it? Do you desire to perform good works for the glory of God? 
Do you love your fellow Christians and promote their spiritual well-being? Do you love the church that is purchased by the blood of Jesus? Do you want to see lost sinners saved? These are some of the marks by which the regenerate are known, those who have received a heart of flesh. Dear friends, if these marks are evident in your life, then you have received the greatest blessing imaginable. And you can come to the table of the Lord with joy. But if these marks are not present, the warning of verse 21 applies to you. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. The table of the Lord is not for you. Those who remain stubborn and rebellious stand under the judgment of the Lord. God will deal with them as they deserve. Well, then, as we come to the close of this chapter, we see the glory of God departing from Jerusalem. The cherubim lift up their wings, verse 22, and God's chariot throne takes off and leaves the temple altogether. Ezekiel watched as the chariot flew off to the east, stopping once on the Mount of Olives as if to survey the city. Finally, God departed from the scene, leaving the city desolate and exposed to Nebuchadnezzar. On the one hand, this closing scene is extremely tragic. For the, the departure of the glory of God was a sign that he had rejected the wicked city of Jerusalem. Yet the tone of this chapter is not only judgment. There's also a great message of hope. Although God has departed from the sanctuary in Jerusalem, verse 16 says... Yet I have been a sanctuary for the exiles in Babylon. Yes, the chariot has departed from Jerusalem. Yes, the glory has departed from the temple. But God has not totally forsaken his own. He will give his people a new spirit and a new heart and he will accomplish his purposes through those who seem to be nobodies, prisoners in Babylon. And so Ezekiel's vision of chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 is over. And Ezekiel finds himself back at his own house in the company of the elders who were with him. He now has a task of communicating what he saw and heard to the captives by the river Chebar. And what a vision it has been! Wrath, slaughter, punishment, and the departure of glory. But in the midst of it all, there still shines the light of God's grace toward his remnant. In the midst of wrath, there is love. In the midst of anger, there is patience and mercy. In congregation, we know don't we? We know that ultimately mercy, love, and grace come only through Jesus Christ. 
The remnant was spared from God's wrath because of the promise of Christ. They would receive a heart of flesh because of Him. That was the hope of God's people in exile, and that is the hope of the church today. Your hope, my hope. Our sins would damn us, but Christ has paid for our sins. Our hard hearts and rebellious nature would surely condemn us, but Christ has paid the price for heart surgery. Through Him, we find life, and through Him, we may see the glory of the Lord in the heavenly Zion. Dear friends, the Lord's judgments are real. They are dreadful. But the Lord's mercy and compassion through Jesus Christ are also real, and they are wonderful. Do you know the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ? Then come, eat, drink, remember, believe, and rejoice in your spiritual resurrection, born again, by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled before you because of your regenerating grace. We have nothing to offer. We deserve nothing from you. And yet, Lord, you come and you take out that stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Surgery that we could never perform, never initiate. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you for spiritual resurrection. We thank you that we can celebrate at this table all that Christ has accomplished for us. We thank you for the wonderful mercies that we experience because of the cross. We pray, Lord, that as we take of the bread and of the cup, you will strengthen our faith, you will fill us with gratitude, and enable us to go our way rejoicing. Lord, if there's anyone here still with a hard rebellious, stony heart, we look to you, the divine surgeon, and plead with you to do your mighty work within, that inward renewal that you alone are able to accomplish. Hear us, we pray, in the name of your beloved Son. Amen.